All right, so 1 Timothy, this is, uh, we've been in this for several months now, but let me give you the, the quick recap. Um, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Yeah, it's not hard to guess who he wrote it to. It's in the name. Um, but Timothy is this young guy, and we're actually going to see that he was a young guy today. Um, it's mentioned in the passage where we're looking at this morning. Uh, but he's this young guy who was brought uh, down to Ephesus to, to help correct the errors that that church had, had uh, fallen into. And uh, basically this church we've seen has, has really moved away from the gospel. They've, they've pursued um, basically a works righteousness, an idea that they're saved through Jesus, but really it's their works that have to be added on top of that. And uh, that was a pervasive problem in the early church. In fact, most of the churches that Paul wrote to struggled with that to some degree or another. Um, he pretty much addresses this issue in every letter he writes, uh, some more extensively than others. But um, this was a huge problem because uh, so much of the, the Jewish system that, that people were coming out of uh, as they came to Christ was so works-oriented, right? You had to do all these things. Um, and Jesus actually is the one who did all the things. So we don't have to do the things to be right with him. We just have to believe and trust in him. And so Paul and the other apostles had, had to spend a great amount of time working with the church in those early days. But guess what? It's still a problem. It's still a problem. We're not, we're not that you know, quick to learn. Um, we still have issues with believing our righteousness is somehow found in what we do. And so Paul is making this point. The scriptures were as important for them uh, as it is for us. And so we're, we're looking at that. But that's the overarching issue. In chapter 4, um, the first five verses is what we looked at last time I was here a couple weeks ago. And that section basically deals with um, this notion that if I sacrifice enough for Jesus, then he's going to love me more. And Paul actually calls this the teaching of demons. Why? Because it's lies. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you more than he already does. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less than he does. This is, this is the fundamental message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ has finished the work and your righteousness and my righteousness are in him, not in what we do. And so Paul walks through that for the first five verses. But then as we get into the section we're in now, we're looking at some of the tangible ways. Uh, Paul's going to give us actually several ways that we can keep our eye on Christ, keep our focus on him so that we can hopefully avoid the downward spiral into works, works righteousness or self-righteousness or whatever else you might want to call it. What are the tactics? What are the things that we need to do uh, to keep our eyes on Jesus? And there are things that we are called to participate in. So the, the idea here is that we're not saved by the things that we do, but we are saved for the things that we do. That's, that's a very clear teaching in Paul's writings. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. And then it says in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. 
and the things that Paul is going to call us to are things that we participate in, but it's flowing out of salvation, not in order to earn salvation. That's a huge distinction. So let's look at it. We're going to see three things today um, that we do as, I think, individually can keep our eyes on Jesus. And then we're going to see three things that collectively as a church, as a local church, we get to do to keep our eyes on Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're at. Verse 6, Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus. So let's stop there for a second. Paul, Paul's writing, of course, to Timothy, whose job it is, is to bring these things, the things that Paul is talking about, to the church. And he's saying, if you bring these things, put these things before the brothers and sisters in the church, you're doing a good job. That's, that's what Jesus has called you to do. That, as his servant, he's called you, Timothy, to do this. Um, so this is kind of the role of the leadership in the church, to bring the things that, that Jesus wants people to hear before everybody. But then here's where it goes. He says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So here's the first thing that we can do to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's this. We need to be trained. We need to be trained. See what he says there? He says, being trained. This is not a natural default of the human heart. The natural default of a human heart is towards works righteousness. That just is. That's just where we're always going to go if we're not trained otherwise. If we're not consistently maturing, growing, learning, and and being reconfronted again and again with the gospel. We need to be trained in what? In the words of the faith— so that's the Bible, okay? That's, that's the scriptures, the words of the faith. What the faith teaches is written down uh, in words. We have the Bible. This is what we're to be trained in, the Bible. And he says, secondly, of good doctrine that you have followed. So we should be trained in the Bible, and we should be trained in what he calls good doctrine. So... Good doctrine flows from the Bible. The doctrine is a word that means our theology, what we believe about God. Um, and so what we're seeing here fundamentally is the words of God that shows us his character and, and work. And, and we need to be trained in these things. And of course, all of them are in the scriptures. We don't have to go outside the Bible for our doctrine or for the words of the faith. They are the scriptures but it's about digging deeply into them, drilling down deep so that we can get to the, to the gold that's in the scriptures for our hearts. So he says we are to be trained in the words of the faith, so the words of scripture, we need to immerse ourselves in them. The good doctrine, so that's understanding and growing deeper into the nature, character, and work of Christ on our behalf, that's good doctrine, that you have followed, that you have followed. So theology, doctrine, the words of scripture are not to be trained just so that we have some academic uh, knowledge of them. There are lots of people who have PhDs in, in the New Testament or something crazy, and 
they don't love Jesus at all. They just know a lot about him. That doesn't, that doesn't correlate, right? We have to follow the words of the faith, follow the good doctrine that we, that we see in the scriptures. And so Paul's saying this, this is how we pursue uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus. We are trained in the Bible, in the work and character of God, and we follow it. We actually apply it. We put it into practice because a theology or a doctrine that is, that is um, believed but not lived is not really believed at the end of the day, right? So we, we can't just kind of go through and have all these things fill our minds without them getting into our hearts, without again then getting out through our hands and feet to actually put, put action to them. But if we're going to see Jesus, we have to be trained. There's no other way that we can get to Jesus outside of the Bible. The Bible is the thing that God has given us. His words, the words of the faith and the good doctrine are what Jesus has given us to give us what we need to know about him and to go extremely deeply into him as deeply as we want, actually. That's the amazing thing is that the gospel is... is shallow enough to be understood by children and deep enough to be plunged to the point that we can't even reach the bottom, right? It's just this incredible thing that we, we don't have to know all the depths of theology to be saved. We just have to know some simple things. We have to know that Jesus lived a perfect life for us. He died in our place, a sinner's death that we should have died, and he then rose again from the dead to bring us life, give us newness of life, and give us uh, in eternity, right? That's, that's fundamentally what we need to believe and, and live within to be saved. It's not complicated, but it can be incredibly deep if we choose to go deep. There's, there's no end to the depth of God's word. And so being trained in it can help us grow deeper and more uh, effectively uh, loving Jesus as we get to know him more and more. I mean, think about this. If you just knew your spouse on a surface level, um, you probably wouldn't love them as much as you do, right? It, you get to know someone on a deeper level, you love them more, right? That's, at least that's how it's supposed to work. And, you know, our, our sinful hearts can, can kind of go the other way at times. But, but ideally, we should be pursuing a relationship with Jesus to go deep into this. So it doesn't mean that we need to all go to seminary. It doesn't mean we all have to be academic people. Not at all. That's not the point. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul was writing these things in a context where there were no seminaries. There were no Bible colleges. This is a, this is a fairly modern invention of, of training people for ministry. That's not the issue that Paul's bringing out. He's simply saying that all Christians should, to the best of their ability— Right within the context of their understanding, dive deeper into who Jesus is, to what he has done, and how that affects our lives. So that's why we're calling this little class I'm going to do in January, Doctrine and Devotion. Because it's not just about filling our heads with more information. It's about actually seeing how the things that we learn about Jesus affect how we live with him and with others. And so there's a shameless plug. We should grow deeply, and this is one way to do it. There's a lot of ways to do it, but I'm going to try to offer this class uh, as a way to do that if you're interested in that. We're trying to help you be trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that we have followed.
Okay, so being trained, that's number one. Number two, look at verse seven. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So there is another phrase there that we've already seen. He uses the word train yourself for godliness. But before that, look at what he says before that. He actually gives us something to not do. Verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Myths is a really hard word for me to say, so I, I won't say it too much more. But he, he, he's saying this, like, keep your eye in the, on the game, right? Focus on what's actually important. And I, I'm just telling you, I'm just going to be real. We focus on so many things that are just silly, ridiculous, and, and distracting. How's about we just focus on Christ and the work that he's done for us? And stop being so consumed by all these irreverent and silly things. And plug anything into that. Okay? Anything you want. Entertainment, politics, uh, you know, your, your own little personal things that are happening. All of that at the end of the day is irrelevant to, to the life that Christ has for you. We need to f- stay laser focused on Jesus, we need, to be, we need to stop getting caught up in the silly things. Now, it's easy to do. That's why Paul writes it. That's why Paul tells us not to do this, because it's something we're prone to do. We need to reject all of that and stay as close to the center as we can. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 4, if you were here when we preached through this, the point wasn't to get rid of Jesus altogether. The point was to just push him to the, to the edges, and, and we put other things in his place in the center. That's the teaching of demons. That is false teaching. That is, is going to completely derail this whole thing. We have to keep Jesus at the center and let all the other things be at the periphery. It doesn't, matter that, doesn't mean that those things don't have a some place in life, right? They do matter to some small degree, but they're not ultimately important because they're not of eternal value. See, that's where he goes, right? He says, he actually uses this word, train yourself for godliness, and then says bodily training is of some value, right? Bodily training, exercise, good thing, right? We should, we should be caring about our physical bodies because it does affect how we live here and now. It does help us to have a better, more comfortable life here and now. But at the end of the day, Paul says it's much better to be focused on godliness because that has value in every way. It's not just this momentary thing that it affects, like bodily training. It actually affects everything. He says the, the present life and also the life to come. So your relationship with Jesus has to be in the center of it. And the way to get Jesus into the center is to let everything else kind of go into their proper place and have Jesus be the center of your heart and, so, and, and thoughts and and, and what you're pursuing. This is, this is not rocket science. This is Christianity 101, but somehow we've lost our way. We've, we always do, and that's why the Bible's written for us. So, so listen, there are things in life that we can care about and, and whatever, fine. But if we, 
keep pushing those things closer to the center of our lives, we're going to be, we're going to be away from the point and we're going get to get ourselves into a place that isn't healthy. So we're called to tr- be trained in the words of the faith and good doctrine, which we followed. We are called to reject what is false, these irreverent and silly myths. And then thirdly here, look at verse 10. He says, for, this, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So the third thing that we can tangibly do to keep our eyes on Jesus is to hope, put our hope in the living God and point others to the hope that we have through his son Jesus. That's what he says, right? To this end we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God. So we need to keep our eyes on the ball. That's the point. We, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to lose our way. It's so easy to see all these other things as more important. And at the end of the day, we're called to set our hope on the living God, on the God who actually matters more than life itself. And as an outflowing of that hope, we see this, this tagline at the end. He says, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And what does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says that, that God is, Jesus is the savior of all people? Does that mean that he teaches some sort of universalism that everybody's just going to get in at the end of the day? Well, no, that contradicts everything else that Paul has said and the, the whole message of the scriptures. No, salvation comes by faith in Jesus. And if we don't have faith in Jesus, we don't have salvation. There is, uh, I'm reading through the book of Acts in my kind of devotional time right now in my life and uh, just came across the little speech that Peter gave that says there, there is no other name by which men can be saved but, but the man Christ Jesus, right? Jesus is the only name that can save us. So what does Paul mean when he says that he's the savior of all people? Well, I think it's important for us to kind of step back here and and understand something. There's a little bit of a language thing here, a little bit of a translation issue. That word savior can be translated savior. That's, it's it's a valid way to translate the word from Greek to English. But the word also carries a meaning of, of being a helper. And I think that that actually gets more to the point for this that God is the helper of all people. Let me give you an example, an example Jesus gives. Jesus says that the sun shines on the righteous and the wicked. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. Basically, he says, whatever beautiful day or rainy day or whatever day it is that you're experiencing as a Christian, somebody who's not a Christian is experiencing that too. Like you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a beautiful sunny day. That's, that's what we call common grace. It's grace that God gives us regardless of our belief in him or not. An atheist who doesn't even believe there is a God can still enjoy a beautiful sunny day or a glorious night sky filled with stars or whatever else you might find enjoyment in. They can find enjoyment in because God is there to help. He is there to help all people. And he is there to, in some sense, display his saving grace to all people. 
Paul talks about this in Romans where the, the world, the very created world declares the glory of God and, the, and, the rea- and points us to a, to a deeper thing, right? The, the created world points us to the reality that there is a creator, but there's something broken in the world, and that is meant to help pivot us to the saving faith of Jesus Christ and to help get us there. We have, but we have to get there through the preaching of the word, uh, the, the teaching of God's word. That's the way in which people are brought to faith. We have to tell people about Jesus. And that, that's where the, the importance of mission comes in. But I think that's what Paul's talking about. When he says that, that he is the savior of all people, that word savior could be translated helper. But then he says this, especially to those who believe. So there is a specific kind of salvation or a specific kind of help that God offers those who believe. And that is what we would call saving grace. There is common grace. So sunshine, food, a good job to to give you an income. All those things, you don't have to be a Christian to be given those things. They're still gifts from God. God is kind even to those who hate him. That's that's a beautiful thing. But, But listen, that reality... Uh, doesn't get them to salvation. The salvation of God comes through Christ to those who believe. And that's the especially part that Paul's talking about. The, the salvation that God offers is especially glorious to those who believe because they're given a whole life. We're given a whole new life and an eternal life. Okay. So we're seeing the need to be trained. So open our Bibles, learn our Bibles, grow in Scripture, we need to reject what's false. We need to keep our eye on the ball. Stop being so distracted like, you know, like we so often are with these shiny objects over here. Keep focused on what's true and then hope in God and ultimately point others to that same hope. Okay, but let's notice something else here because as we continue through the passage, a lot of this obviously is meant to be in the context of the church, but it can, it can kind of be taken as an individual, right? I, I can study my Bible alone in my room or whatever. I, I can hope in God internally. But, but where does all of this fit into the ministry of the local church? That's where Paul goes next. We, we see something important when we read the Bible. Um, Christians are not called to live the Christian life in isolation. We are called to be part of a body, the body of Christ, expressed in local churches. And so Jesus gathers people together under his word, by his spirit, on mission to help other people love Jesus. And and so Paul's going to give us three ways. Now, these are not the only ways, but three good ways in which the church as a whole, as a, as a body of Christians, can, can pursue these things together. So let's look at verse 11, uh, um, 11 and 12. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. All right, so this is not uh, really the center point of the text, but he's, he's addressing Timothy specifically here. And Timothy's a young guy, like I said, he's probably, most people think he was probably in his late 20s, 
maybe his mid up to his mid 30s. Nobody knows how old he was, but he was a young guy. And obviously his youthfulness was either maybe maybe a combination of both of these things, maybe a point of um, kind of uh, fear in him, like feeling an inadequacy uh, in his ministry and probably a little bit of a problem within the church where people who expected somebody older like Paul to be the one telling them what to do. Paul's coming alongside this this young guy and says, listen, don't let people despise you. Just plug away, love them, show them an example, right? Basically, the point here is that age is not the qualifying factor, but maturity in Christ is. Okay, that's a little side thing. Let's look at verse 13. He says, until I come, so here's his instructions, until I come, his, his plan is to come to Ephesus. But until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, um, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that, you, that was given to you by the prophecy uh, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, so three things there kind of put together in a real in real quick succession. Okay, verse um, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Let's stop there and talk about what that means. All right, let's start with the word public. That's, this is an important point, I think, actually. Um, the public reading of Scripture implies that people come together in a location, under a roof together, or whatever it might be, or outside, or whatever, but they're together in a public way under the Bible. This, this is actually hugely fundamental, and I think we, we've missed it in our technological age. Uh, Christianity is not meant to be a, a, a purely private experience. You, you can grow by listening to podcasts or watching a YouTube video of some pastor somewhere or, or being in some online church. I put that in quotations because there's no such thing. Um, but... But the idea here is that we cannot, like, neglect the public aspect of the church. The church is meant to be a gathering of people in a place. I just read a book um, called Analog Church, and it's, about, it's written by a guy who pastors in Silicon Valley. So all of his church members work in the tech industry. A lot of them work at Facebook and Twitter and all these companies that are in Silicon Valley. And uh, this pastor has noticed a, a, a growing trend in the dawn of the technological era uh, of people just kind of putting aside the public gathering for the virtual gathering. And the, the, basically the purpose of the book is to say there is no such thing as a church that's not public. <laughs> it's, it's not a real thing. It's got to be a tangible expression of people in life together. And I, I, I just don't think there was even a category for this in, in the New Testament times. When Paul, I mean, obviously, they didn't have what we have. 
but I, but I think we have to be really careful about throwing aside what is so clearly taught in the scriptures as the way the church is. It functions as a public gathering uh, where everyone is welcome to come. That's what public means. Uh, but it's a group of people gathered together. That's important. And you obviously I'm preaching to the choir. You're in the room, right? Um, but but let's let's just talk about that. Like he says we're we're publicly gathered to read the scriptures. This is what we're doing. We we don't come here to just disseminate our own ideas or talk about our own philosophies. We come together around the Bible and read it together. And yeah, we talk about it and I preach on it. Of course, that's that actually comes into the next couple of things. But, but we are called to sit under God's word together. And that's a glorious thing. We should be grateful for the, for the opportunity to do it. The public gathering of scripture. And it's funny to think that, uh, well, it's not funny. I shouldn't say funny. It's, it's interesting uh, to think that in, in societies where um, persecution runs rampant for, for public gatherings, uh, some aspects of uh, China or, or Iran or think of these, these countries that are hostile to Christianity, to true Christianity. Um, it's interesting to notice that those, those Christians, they still gather. They just do it in secret. They do it in bunkers and basements and they do it in, in ways that they're hopefully not going to be raided by the authorities. But they love the gathering of believers because they they don't take it for granted that they that they're called to this and we do unfortunately and so there it is we're we're called to gather to devote ourselves not just to to do it occasionally to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture it kind of goes to what uh the writer of hebrews chapter 10 says in 23 uh, verse 23 through 25 he writes this, um, let me see, let me find it. He says, yeah, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together. Neglecting is an intentional thing, right? Like, I understand. I'm not, you know I'm not a legalist. You know I'm not mad if you don't come every week. That's not, what, that's not my point. I'm not here to browbeat you about this. Things happen. Things come up. People, you know, th- you got lives, right? Okay, I get that. That's not my point in this. My point is, though, to not neglect to meet together as if it's just this add-on to your life and unimportant and maybe I'll show up once in a while. Um, that's, that's what we're called to and encouraged herein, is to make it a commitment, a devotion to be together. And so he says, uh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we get together? It's to encourage one another all the more. As we see the world get crazier around us, we get to be together and encourage each other. Okay. So come to church. That's one way. That's the main idea here. To keep our eyes on Jesus, we we commit ourselves to the local church. Not in a legalistic way, not in a way that we beat each other up, or, but but we should be on board with that. Secondly, he uses this word exhortation. 
the public reading of Scripture, this is still verse 13, to exhortation. What is exhortation? Well, exhortation is basically what we would call preaching. Okay, it's taking the Bible and it's, and it's encouraging and convicting and calling uh, on you to, to see Jesus and how he calls you to live. This is what exhortation is basically calling out what the Bible says for everybody's life. It's, it's preaching, more or less. And then he says, thirdly, teaching. So the church should gather together under the word, hear it preached from the pulpit, and then thirdly, teach. Teaching is a little different than preaching. I know what I'm doing is kind of teaching, and it's, uh, you know, there's some overlap for sure. But teaching is, has a little bit of a different emphasis, whereas exhortation has an emphasis to a call to you to, to live in Christ in a, in a different way than you're living now. Teaching is more of a, a expressing the truths of the Bible uh, in a way that can get to the head, that maybe down into the heart, but, but maybe it's a little bit less uh, application-oriented and more information-oriented. There's a role for all of this in the church, to publicly read the scriptures, to hear it preached, and, and therefore see how it applies to my life, and teaching as in training and growing and maturing um, with, it, with the information of the scriptures. So Paul says, clearly here, that we are to devote ourselves to these things. He then tells Timothy to not neglect the gift that he was given by Jesus, and that was confirmed by the council of elders. The church confirmed Timothy's call to ministry. They laid their hands on him to commission him for this work. But then look at verse 15. Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. This is not just a casual thing. This is, a, this is meant to be like an immersive thing that we, we are committed to these things, these things being the scriptures, exhortation, teaching, gathering together, all those things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. In other words, this is how we grow as Christians. This is not, this is not rocket science. This is not crazy stuff. This is just basically how you grow as a Christian. You sit under the word, you're, you're actively in the church, and, and you're growing and learning and being taught and preached and hearing, hearing the word preached. This is how people grow and this is how you, people will see your progress in the faith. And then he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Again, it's very easy for the human heart to be diverted from these things. So we've got to pay attention. Pay attention to our hearts, ourselves. Pay attention to what's being taught. Pay attention so that we keep our eye on Jesus. And then he says this at the close of this chapter. He says, persist in this. Keep it up. Keep going. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't give up when it gets hard. Persist in these things. Keep pursuing Jesus. Because by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul, Paul's, of course, speaking to Timothy, right, who's teaching and preaching in that context. But he's saying to him, listen, this is how salvation is played out and worked out in both you, Timothy, and me, and, and all of us, right, and, and the church as a whole. We are, we are to persist in these things. 
Let's not give up on the church. Let's not give up on each other. That's fundamental, right? Like, let's continue to, to grow deeper into Jesus and grow deeper into fellowship. And by doing this, we will actually see progress. And we'll see Christ above all, centered right where he belongs, elevated high above us, worshiped and honored by us, and, and ultimately followed by us. We are, we are called to follow Jesus. So let's keep our head in the game. The good news, this is the game, the good news of Jesus, that he came into the world to save sinners. Chapter 2 of First of Timothy, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the whole thing. And Jesus did that by coming into our world in just a couple weeks, we're going to start our Christmas series and looking at this reality. They came into our world to live the life we couldn't live. And then he went 30 years later or so to the cross of, of Calvary to die the death that we should have died. He died in the place of sinners and then he rose again to give us life. If we're not devoted to that, we, we're not doing what we're called to do. Let's keep our head in the game and focused on Christ, and that's where we'll see the progress that we want to see. All right, let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us and saved us, um, that, that you have given us the, the important reminders that we need as, as distracted, easily distracted people, that the church is, is about the public gathering around the word hearing your word taught and preached. And we pray that we would, we would see that more and more in our lives and that it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to not be distracted by all the shiny objects that we, we can uh, find ourselves looking at. Help us to just keep our eyes on the simplicity of the gospel on what Jesus has done to save us. And may we point others to it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.